0: Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a 3-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter consumervc for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the wonderful world of venture capital, primarily focusing on investing and building consumer technology and physical good-related businesses. If you are a founder currently building a consumer-facing business, I also run a private newsletter where I share a bit of deal flow with folks in my network. Feel free to apply to be featured at consumervc.com startup. My guest today is Samara Hernandez, founder of Chingono Ventures. Samara invests at the pre-seed and seed stages on industries that are massively changing and founders whose backgrounds are uniquely positioned to create businesses in growth markets that are often overlooked. We discuss what she means by overlooked opportunities, some of the differences when investing in consumer versus enterprise, and the city of Chicago. Without further ado, here's Samara. samara thank you so much for joining me today how are you
1: i am doing really great how are you
0: i'm doing well thanks doing really well so i want to start at the very beginning what was your initial attraction to finance
1: so it's interesting because I grew up, in a non-traditional background and I didn't have, I guess, anyone in my family or any relative or friend that I knew was in finance. So I actually started working at a hair salon in high school and I thought I was going to be a hairstylist, but I picked up math and science really quickly being young. And so I ended up applying to the University of Michigan and got an engineering degree there. And while I was there, I joined the Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers. And it took me to a conference where Goldman Sachs was there. And I had done some engineering internships, but I was like, oh, this is interesting. Goldman Sachs, what do you guys do? I had no idea. This was and three, 2004. And they're like, well, you know, here, we'll, we'll tell you what we do, but give us your resume. And we talked and they're like, we need more engineers in finance. And so that conversation turned into two summer internships. And it led me to, to Wall Street during the height of, you know, in the middle 2000s, 04, 05, 06. Where it was just an incredible time to be in finance. And I just fell in love with being on Wall Street then. And so that ended up being, you know, 10 years at Goldman Sachs and then now in finance and venture capital.
0: That's amazing. That's a really amazing story. And that's cool how I guess your initial attraction was just being at a very young age, being really fast and very good at math and science and your initial attraction there. And then going all the way to working at Goldman Sachs and of course, found your own venture fund. What I guess was your attraction to the private markets?
1: Yeah, so I spent you know nearly a decade in the public markets, and it was exciting. It was it was crazy. I mean, it was oh seven oh eight when I first joined Goldman Sachs, so it was the beginning of the last financial crisis, and I saw a lot of things collapse. I saw a lot of things that had never happened in the space happen, and so it was an interesting time to be there. Being in sales, going from an engineering background to a sales you know role, it was very different. But I left to go to get my MBA at Northwestern. And there is where I was like, okay, I want to stay in finance. I just don't know what I want to do. And that's why I took a class on venture capital called VC Lab where you apply for, and if you get a job in venture or at at an angel group, you go and intern for a quarter. And I was able to do that. And I got a job in early stage investing and I just absolutely fell in love with it. It's just, it was a very, very different thing. You, you, depending on what stage, you don't have any product. You might be pre-product, pre-revenue. You might just have a team and a dream. You have to analyze the market size in a very different way. And you have to go off of very little. And for me, that was just a very different thing coming from an engineering background and from a finance background where that's all you analyze, right? And so it was just an exciting thing for me to be able to be a small part of someone's passion to change the world. And them believing in me and, and, and partnering with me to, to help them, you know, provide them the capital and other kind of value-added services and value-added things to, to be able to join in them on their journey. So that, that's what got me exposed to early stage venture investing in the private markets.
0: No, that's cool. That's really neat. I guess going from like maybe like doing, you know, heavy Excel data sets every day to going and actually meeting with founders, learning about what the insight was that led them to do the unthinkable and start a business. So talk to me a little bit about how Chingona Ventures came together initially and as well as I think, I know we talked about this as well, but your mission with your venture fund.
1: Yeah. So shortly after I graduated from Northwestern, I joined a local VC fund here and we did anything from seed to grow Growth. And I, as you can imagine, saw the types of founders, the types of business models, the types of industries that were getting funded. And this was back in 2014. So this is before a lot of the Me Too movement. This is before a lot of the, the recent events that happened, you know, kind of focusing on diversity and specific racial diversity in tech. So there was one, a lot of opportunity I saw in one going earlier where not everyone has our friends and family checked to write to help you get your business started, especially in ecosystems that were not as mature as San Francisco. Two, go into industries that weren't traditionally funded or that were growing but often overlooked. And then third, go with founders that didn't fit this traditional mold, right? This traditional kind of Valley, Stanford, big tech, companies, or if they were, you know, helping to bring on people around the table, whether it's investors or, or team members, they could bring a different perspective to the company. So I saw those big that big opportunity about two years ago, and I went off to create an angel group, and I found my now LP who was like, hey, I'm looking to fund a fund like this. And so we got the, the fund together. I launched Chingona Ventures last year, which by the way, Chingona means badass woman in Spanish and from Mexico in particular, and I'm investing in badass founders. And so that's why I need my fund back. But it was launched last year and I've made about 15 investments so far in pre-seed and seed stage. And so yeah, I'm excited about it.
0: That's awesome. That's really great. I believe that you're more of a generalist. Is that correct? Yes. How do I guess do you analyze and think about opportunities both on the B2B side and on the B2C and maybe qualities in the founder that you like to see, or if there are different skill sets that you like to see in terms of those two broad areas?
1: Yeah, it, we're we're generalist in nature, but we see opportunities in a couple different sectors. So we like to look at fintech, future of work, femtech, food, health and wellness, and ad tech. And our portfolio is about 50% B2B, 50% B2C. And there's stuff that we look at in both B2B and B2C. And there's stuff that we look at more on the B2C than on the B2B side. And I guess because this is called Consumer BC, <laughs> I could I should touch on the B2C side a little bit more. But on the consumer side, what we always look for, you know, Founder, market, product, capital efficiency, kind of exits, all that in the space. The change in on the consumer side, as you know, we've kind of seen in the, in the industry, is that a lot of consumer companies have raised a lot of money. The exits haven't been there necessarily, right? And so many of them haven't have still yet to exit, even if they're you know unicorns or they've poured a ton into kind of the traditional paid marketing, and and we've seen a ton of that over the last few years. That's not anything new. So what we look for a lot of times in the, on the consumer side is a lot more capital efficiency, a little bit more traction early on, even if they come in at the pre seed or seed stage, organic traffic coming through, how they're building community, how they're, we call it guerrilla marketing tactics they're using. So things around that are not traditional, that are not paid, but that get people's attention, that uh, build your core loyal customers. And then we look at capital efficiency is super important to us. So how much have they raised or how much have they bootstrapped and where have they gone to at what point with that money? Because if we know that they can get to call it, you know, eight million in top line revenue with only six hundred thousand dollars raised, that's indicative of that, you know, what they can do with call it four million dollars raised, right? And the top line revenue there. And then also, as we think about exits, we think about okay, you know, maybe it's not a billion dollar exit, or if it's, you know, they get acquired for less than that, but they raise less than your traditional kind of huge amounts of funding, then that's still a big exit for us. So I think about it from that perspective on the consumer side. And then just kind of a little bit something, something unique to Chingona Ventures is that I like to look at markets that are, you know, massive, growing and overlooked. And so one of the investments that we recently made into a B2C company was a company called Sumo Wealth. SUMA is a financial wellness platform for the Latino community, which the Latino community is one of the, the fastest growing demographics in the United States. We have the highest purchasing power. One in every four kids being born in the United States is Latino and anybody that isn't investing in this market, I just don't understand because it's one of the most overlooked markets. And we saw this with the election. We saw this with a bunch of other stuff. So the founder has built community. She has 30 years of experience here. She knows how to grow it. And she knows how to grow it fast. And she knows how to engage with this community that buys differently, that invests differently, that trusts banks differently. And when she went to go launch this financial tech platform that nobody else has gained significant market share in, I was like, okay, I'm in. So that's one an example of a company that had a unique perspective on a market that knows how to grow, that knows how to understand them. And then on the other side of how we do the consumer investing and and what we look for differently than B2B.
0: No, that's really helpful. I'm always curious for funds and folks that are generalists on some of the differences that they find within B2B to B2C, because that hopefully can be helpful to founders that are listening, just understand a little bit. And it's really interesting how consumer has to be a little bit later, or you have to see a bit more traction than B2B. It's interesting, because when I spoke with Anna Barber, who's the managing director of Techstars LA, and for her, it's the opposite, which I thought was interesting. For her, if it's a B2B business, it needs to be more traction for her and more validation rather than on the B2C side, she goes a little bit earlier. So this always, always like to see how investors just do it a little bit differently.
1: What's funny, I just invested with Anna. She was one of my, I was a lead on, on Suma and she was the second check-in to Suma Wealth.
0: Oh, <laughs> that's awesome. That's so, really cool. That's yeah. really cool. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Your investment in that company reminds me a little bit as well, talking with another person I interviewed on this show was Han Chen. He was talking about, he invested in a company called We, which is an Asian grocery online business. And how he thought that the Asian consumer or Asian Americans that purchased Asian groceries was also a market that was overlooked very much. It's still a massive, massive category.
1: Huge. I just, there's one in Chicago that I'm taking a look at right now that does Indian grocery delivery. And they're growing like crazy with no money raised and bootstrapped. And it just shows the opportunity in these markets that are overlooked.
0: No, absolutely. So, I mean, part of the reason it seems like these opportunities are overlooked, it, it seems like a bit of a diversity problem or very much so a diversity problem. Maybe it's a, a diversity venture, maybe it's a diversity fund. What do you think needs to change in order for investors? I mean, obviously, it's a great opportunity for you because you're seeing these opportunities. But what are some things you think needs to maybe change in order for more money going towards companies that are, you know, in impacting maybe underrepresented communities?
1: So it has to start at the top. I know a lot of people give VCs a lot of a hard time on, you know, the lack of diversity and in tech right and a lot of times in vc especially at the earliest stages it's very referral based it's very you know network based there's a ton more bias that happens because you're investing super early and there's less data so there is a thing there and there's been a lot of movement in bringing in more women to vc bringing more you know getting more promotions all that but it really has to start at the top and what is the top? That's with limited partners. And you know, for me as a VC, if I'm making investments and many times with my network, and if I'm getting those returns and my LP doesn't really care where I get those investments, I'm not going to change my ways. right? I can still raise money. I can still raise bigger funds. And I have to be careful with this because it's not an either or. It's not like I make investments and I get great returns. Or I invest in diverse founders. And that's been a big, big topic of conversation, right? Many times when you invest, when people think you invest in diverse founders, it's women, it's only women, or it's only minorities, it's donations, people create separate vehicles, and they call it impact. And it sends the message that investing in these founders is not profitable, which I fundamentally believe is wrong. And I've built my whole thesis on it. Now, I don't only invest invest in women and minorities. I've actually invested in all white, male, straight teams. I look for great businesses. But as research after research shows that diverse teams from all kinds of diversity, it's not just a check the box to check the box, but race, gender, background experiences. If you're an immigrant, right? All these different, you bring different perspectives to the table and you hear them and you make product decisions. You make sales strategy decisions. You build a company culture around that. These companies tend to outperform, right? And so for me, it's always been a case of an investable opportunity that's been overlooked. Venture investing has been the same for the last 20 years. The world has not been the same. And so anyways, back to what can be done, it comes at the top is from the LP side. Now, If I do see more limited partners, and that's family offices, endowments, institutions changing their strategy and calling on fund managers to look at their team and their investments. And one of the company, one of the corporate companies that did this was PayPal Ventures. PayPal had committed $530 million to investing in the black and brown communities after the events, the unfortunate events this summer that caused a spark in conversation of our industry and the structural changes that needed to happen and they've committed to this and part of that 50 million of that was committed to venture capital investing in fund managers that will ultimately go into these founders we chingona ventures was selected as, as one of the eight that was going to receive this funding And it was big news for us. It was big news for the industry as well as for the other fund managers. And you know what? That's a significant check. And that's something that can, you know, that launched our fund to raise and will ultimately get more money into these investments. And my ultimate goal is to prove that it's not a charity, that you don't need to give donations, that you don't have to have it as a separate fund, but it will get outsized returns and it will beat industry averages because these founders are building businesses that are in growing markets markets that are overlooked, that understand the customer in a unique way, that can build products that understand the end user, and that could build products that are taking advantage of these new regulations that are changing, whether that's environmental, governmental, or others. And for me, it's an investable opportunity first and foremost. And the more we can get limited partners that invest in these funds to then in turn, make these commitments or make these investments because it's not an either or. You can get better returns with these diverse teams. That's the way we're gonna change this industry.
0: I think you raised a number of good points there. I think one of my main takeaways was in order for this industry to change, it can't be looked at any of this type of investing. Women or underrepresented folks. I mean, it can never be looked at it as a charity and something that you feel like you've done good, like they actually lead to outside returns. There's a number of research documents around that documents this around having diverse teams. And as well, I mean, just thinking about some of the opportunities you described to look into, right? The finance suma, you know, that is targeting the Latino community. Another, you know, weave that I mentioned that's targeting the Asian community. So anyway, I think that's how you not you might not be able to see those opportunities if you're, for example, just like a white male, right? It's possible. So or there's
1: or there's no one on your team that has these networks, right? people come from diverse networks. And I'm not just talking about gender and race. You know, we're talking about geography. We're talking about upbringing. We're talking about different networks. And so for me, it's less of a check the box than more of a, what's going to bring a unique perspective, different networks to the table to make better investments.
0: Absolutely. Totally agree with you there. And so I know Chingona is located in uh, Chicago. So what was the attraction there? I know you went to Northwestern. So of course, you were already in Chicago. But what was the attraction there since Chicago is it's not as well known to be a venture capital hub. But why did you choose to start your fund in Chicago?
1: Well, so I actually came here from Mexico in the early 90s so my family immigrated from there and why chicago it was my aunt came here in the 70s she followed her husband to chicago he found work here and so how it normally happens is that somebody in your family comes and then they bring everybody else so we came for a different reason my my grandma was was uh, sick at the time and they only gave her a few months to live and so we ended up coming here she ended up living for three more years, thank goodness. And so we ended up staying here, but that's why Chicago. And I went to the University of Michigan. So I went nearby, I went to Northwestern. I spent time at Goldman in Chicago. So my whole life has been here, my family's here. But when I decided to launch my fund, why Chicago? I hadn't thought about going anywhere else. You know, one, my LP is the Illinois Growth and Innovation Fund. And so they've made a commitment to fund managers in Illinois. And there had been a lot of growth in terms of venture capital in the midwest i would argue that there's pros and cons about being here right the pro is that it's a small pond that's growing and so you can be a little bit of a bigger fish a tiny fish but like a little bit bigger you know in a little pond whereas if you go somewhere else you're just like not even you know i don't even know what's the smallest thing that what a whale eat what's that called <laughs> <laughs> yeah. krill grill
0: yes yeah yeah
1: right you're not even that like in an ocean right? And so it's very difficult to be a Midwest fund. Like I've gone to, I used to travel pre-COVID to San Francisco, LA, New York, where I have a lot of investments. And even being a venture capitalist, trying to talk to other venture capitalists, they want nothing to do with you sometimes, and you have to build your network, right? I mean, everyone's trying to get to them. And so for me, it was like, okay, how do I, as a Midwest VC, build a presence nationally? Because I invest in founders all over the United States, not just the Mid. West. And that's super important to me because I've seen how businesses have grown in the Midwest and aren't able to get capital on the coast when they need it most where you know, at the growth stage. And then I've seen, you know, funds that just focus here. I think, I think it's great. But, you know, what, what COVID has done is shown that you can really be anywhere. Like geography is not necessarily a differentiator just yet. So how do I build that presence all over? But at the same time, the pro of being in the Midwest as well is that we've always looked at businesses that had unit, good unit economics that focus many times on profitability that didn't have crazy valuations. They were more normal and didn't have to raise a ton. And so that I think is great about the Midwest is that you actually focus on fundamentals. You actually focus on capital efficiency. And look, many of the founders I invest with, again, I don't only only invest in women and minorities, but about 50 plus percent is minority in my portfolio. And many times these founders, not because they could, but because they needed to, they were capital efficient and they had decent valuations. And so when COVID hit it wasn't like we had to do massive layoffs. It wasn't like we got a bunch of funding in and had to like cut a bunch of people out. No, it was like we were already capital efficient. Maybe we cut some contractors and we maybe raised a little bridge round to get us through a few more months. But many of these people pivoted. I just tweeted about this. One of my companies, Alpha A out of New York, they like their business got crushed. They were were selling to basically hotels and the hospitality industry and they turned it around very quickly. They raised a little bit of money on on Republic and they had their been having their best two quarters ever in their company history. And so there's a lot of really great things that come out of the Midwest and being here and seeing deals here. But I do believe that there's a lot of opportunity and there's a a new wave of investors coming in. I just texted my friend Ezra, who you, I think, had on here from Starting Line. He's a legend. I love that. He's so incredible. He's one of the first people I met in VC. He worked on the hall for me. And then also, you know, Listen Ventures, Rick Desai and, and his partner, Jeff, like there's some newer VCs coming to market. And I really believe, you know, we're starting off small, but we're going to disrupt the space. And there's a lot of other VCs coming to market and more capital into these founders. So you're going to see a lot more coming out of the Midwest, um, but that's why I chose Chicago.
0: No, I love to hear it. And I love to see it. And uh, yeah, Ezra is awesome. It was a really fun conversation that we had. And I'm sure you've had plenty of fun conversations with him. So you know, what I'm always interested in is since you do invest around the United States, what have you seen, you know, these scrappy entrepreneurs, founders that are located maybe in secondary tertiary markets do well that maybe don't have an investor network or don't come from a big market that's a big, you know, VC market per se?
1: Yeah. Well, what I always advise early on for founders that come from the non-coastal cities, I call it. So when I talk about that, I talk, I think about non-SF, non-LA, non-New York, non-Boston, kind of everywhere else. And, And I have made investments in Chicago and Boulder and Houston and Miami that were outside of the coast. When I think about that, I always think about, okay, with as early as possible, even if I lead it, the deal is getting investors outside of the coast that are either pre-seed or seed. And there's a lot more pre-seed investors on the coast than in the Midwest, uh, or I guess now there's a little bit more that are coming to market. But I've always co-invested or tried to co-invest with other pre-seed investors on the coast because one, they're in the same stage. We're not competitive, right? We can't close the full round. And so there's a lot more collaboration there. And it helps people build their network outside of the coast by from these investors, bring in their network as well as understand what sort of metrics and what sort of things that you know series series C or Series A investors are looking for outside of the Midwest. So I always advise companies to do that part of it. Now alternatively Companies that are, are on the coast that want to build a presence here, especially in consumer, you know this better than anybody else. But like, it's great to test out your product in business in the big markets. But what about the other percentage of the country, right? Test it out in a small town in Illinois. That's where you really see if you can get scale. And so, companies like Tiny Organics, which you had on your show, which we were just talking about, Betsy's just an incredible human being. Period, CEO, and so is her partner Sophia. But that company started in New York. There. They they do frozen baby food and they deliver it to your home. They came to the Midwest because they had gotten early validation in New York. And one, Betsy's from here. She wanted to move back here. But two, they really wanted to expand out here. Every other kind of baby food company was focusing on the big cities and they wanted to build out their presence here. And so they came to the Chicago and they couldn't find early kind of pre-product, pre-revenue or they had a product they had some revenue, but basically pre-launch. They couldn't find a lot of companies, VCs that invest in pre-launch companies. And one of my friends introduced me to her. Fell in love with it. I made an investment before they launched and she eventually ended up moving out here. She's expanded out here we've done events, we've done a lot of organic growth outside of the big cities. And that's, I think, attributed to a lot of her early success. So there's a lot of things that people even on the coast, I think, will benefit from bringing in investors from the Midwest, especially on the consumer side, that not only for capital, but in terms of building your presence out here, and in terms of expanding your consumer base.
0: No, that makes a ton of sense in terms of why a company that's even located on the coast, you know, should also be looking, whether it's an investor or a partnership or what have you, but- Or
1: employees.
0: Employees, exactly, right. exactly. Within like the middle, you know, a Chicago, a Cincinnati, a Detroit, yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And I want to know, you know, what I always am interested to buy personally, investors that are generalists like yourself, like where you have, you know, 50% of your portfolio is B2B and, you know, 50% roughly is, you know, B2C and- since you also invest in food and bev when I've chatted to investors like Will McClellan, who only focuses primarily on B2C, and he thinks about, especially on like the food and beverage side, he thinks about what he does actually when it comes to portfolio construction, much more similar in terms of what you see in growth equity, in terms of maybe like a 5x or a 10x or a 15x, rather than you know, in software, which it could be a lot more binary outcome. It could be in a thousand X or it could be zero. I'm always really interested in focusing like you, who managed to do both things extremely well on the software side and also on the food and side. But how do you manage that portfolio since your return profile could look very different?
1: Yeah, and maybe it comes from my time at Goldman Sachs where we constantly talked about portfolio diversification. And we talked about having a 40, 30, 20, 10 split, right? 40% in equity, 30% in fixed income, 20% in non-correlated asset classes, 10% in alternatives. And when I think about portfolio construction, I think about the piece, that piece of it. I mean, you have to hit home runs regardless. This is a home run business. It's not a, you know, one to two X is going to make the fund and that's when it was going to get you outside as returns. So that's why for me, when I think about a B2B investment versus a B2C investment, when I think about capital efficient, when I think about how much needs to get raised in all these scenarios, it always comes down to the end goal of hopefully getting that, you know, huge return. And, and what does that huge return look like? Maybe it's a hundred X, maybe it's a 10 X, but is the market growing? Are there downstream investors? Is this company capital efficient? Can they get to profitability? Can they control their own destiny? Are acquires in the space? Like that's what I asked regardless. Now, in the food and bev space, I've actually made one investment in food and bev, which is tiny. So the other ones have been in food tech. And I tend to do less of food and bev and more kind of tech, pure tech, especially recently, I've I've done less and less of that. There's one deal that I'm going to do now, which I am so excited about, which I can't say because we're doing final diligence, but I've been talking to this. Company per year, and you have to have her on if you haven't already. But I won't say the company name. But I told her she ruined any sort of consumer investments for me ever, or up until this point. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason why is because I saw her about a year and a half ago, and she if as I say all this stuff some of the people in your audience might be able to like know who this person is because she's a legend I think but um she's in a space that hasn't gotten venture funding where you could not join any accelerator historically to be in the industry that she's in she didn't have any investor like no Vcs focus on this she couldn't post ads on Facebook and Instagram, she got kicked off. She had to sue people like for advertisements because of the space that she's in. And she kept grinding and grinding and grinding. And when I met her, I mean, she, she 60 plus gross margins raised less than 600,000 in bootstrap over, you know, close to 6 million in top line revenue. Like, what the heck? This person is just a machine. And by the way, that was like last year. She's killed those. She's gone way above those numbers already. And we're finally invested. We met a year ago. We kept, you know, in touch. And now my friend's leading the deal and we're participating. But I look at every other consumer deal that comes to the door and I'm just like, okay, they poured money into Facebook and Instagram or they're raising money to put into paid or they haven't signed up their first customer yet or, you know, all this other stuff. And for me, I know, I know it's really, really hard building a business as a consumer business. But when I think about consumer, I'm like, that's a high bar for me. <laughs> and I think about this person. So I think like she literally could get to a hundred million plus in revenue and, you know, with very little raise. And when I think about exits, that's how I think about like the less you raise, you don't have to have as big of an exit on the other side to get a really good return for, for um, investors or for yourself. And so for me, I'm like, how capital efficient is somebody? And I look at that and I'm like okay that's a perfect example but then she's also had acquisition offers already which she hasn't taken and that's nothing special in the sense it is special but it's not special in the sense that many people can't get acquisitions offers early on and she just turned it down and was like nope I'm building this business I'm going big and you know she's gonna crush it so anyways I'm excited about it and once we do the deal I want you to have her on because she's incredible
0: I'm so curious who it is I am so (laughs) curious Yeah, because we've had on a few women entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And anyway, very, very curious to say to Lise who who would actually give me a few weeks. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Please ping me in an email in a few weeks. But uh, (laughs) but I'd love to have her on. That'd be that'd be amazing. That'd be amazing. So I think that like one of the themes that we certainly touched on a lot is capital efficiency. And it seemed like in venture capital, we went through these last few years of kind of grow at all costs. Now I think we've kind of tamed back a bit, maybe over the last like year or two, it was a trend to be a lot more capital efficient. But when you're meeting with founders, and maybe you see that the business is capital efficient, but sometimes I feel like there is this tendency to want to raise the big round or want to maybe over fundraise. Is that a conversation that you're having with founders in terms of how you think not only on the scale side in terms of the business, but how they actually approach venture capital in total?
1: Yeah, Look, first of all, capital efficiency has been sexy for me for a very long time. I don't think it's ever not been (laughs) (laughs) a thing, right? Like... And maybe it was me growing up in the Midwest. Maybe it was me working at a Midwest VC fund. It's always been a thing, and that was the clash. I think when the trend was grow at all costs, because our companies were capital efficient, some were profitable, and then you know West Coast VCs didn't want to see that. And, and I think now it's, it's it's a more positive.
0: It's becoming trendy. It's becoming.
1: It's trendy. becoming trendy, which is nice. It's it's good. <laughs> You know, what's interesting, the way I think about it, because some of my founders have gotten some inbounds, one of them in particular, I'm thinking about that we just had a conversation recently, because he's getting a lot more inbounds. He just raised a pre-seed that I led in February. And he's in the B2B space, has one paying customer, but this is like a huge market and growing opportunity. And people are finding out, it's like private equity firms and getting acquisition off already and all this other stuff. I'm like, you got to stop, like you got to build. And that's a distraction. I think it's good to you know entertain some of these that are strategic. So for, you're always fundraising, right? I was in sales for 10 years, you're always fundraising, but it takes time away from the business. And I always say like, yes, you can take money now and you can raise a ton, but the more money you take, the more expectations you're going to have, the more you're going to be pressured to do maybe things that you may or may not be ready for or may not want to do. And the more validation and proof points you have, and even the closer you are to revenue or are paying customers, the more control you'll have over who you choose and you control over your own destiny. So and not everybody has that luxury to be in that position. So first of all, if you're in a, that position, that's great. Right. That's great validation. But I always, from the beginning, hundred percent focus on like, what does their model look like? How are they thinking about the business? What are the revenue drivers? When are we getting, when are you running out of cash? How are you thinking about when, when you get to profitability? Can you turn on the funnel, keep, you, you know, off the funnel in terms of like where you spend the money. And one of the best examples of somebody doing this really well was a company career karma. They're an ad tech company. The CEO, Ruben Harris is like just a machine. He's incredible, which you should also have on your show. Cause he's got an amazing story. <laughs> (laughs) So I'll send you a few lists of of boundaries you should have. But he was super capital efficient. He had like just three full-time... People on his team working out of an apartment in San Francisco. And then he was so capital efficient that we're like, okay, turn it up a little bit. You know, you got you to start spending. So he started spending more and increasing his burn. And then in February, obviously everything hit. And so they had a delay in terms of revenue coming in from some of these boot camps that he was going to send money to. And so he just cut it down and he was able to because it wasn't like this huge hire a ton. It was just like, okay, pour a little bit into marketing. Okay, turn it down a little bit. And he got to profitability very quickly. He got the revenue. That it was expecting in from some of these boot camps. And he was four months profitable. In, in during COVID and like what you know and he still and that allowed him to have runway through I think end of 2021 2022 and not only that but he had control over his own destiny and he had some interesting Series A conversations that he had he talked but he didn't entertain until you know now he's in conversations with a really really great VC and he's able to you know have better negotiating power better control over timing who he takes the term sheet from and that investment is going to take his business to the next level right and so when I think about capital efficiency I think. About again, not everyone has the luxury of this scenario. But Ruben, even being in San Francisco, had he had amazing investors around him, he has an amazing network. But he focused on his customers, he focused on getting revenue in, he focused on solving one key problem very, very well for a customer. And with that, he was able to raise, but he didn't spend it all, he was capital efficient. An economic environment happened where he was forced to turn down his spend, which he He did, he got to profitability and now he's in an amazing position and he has control over his own destiny. In the business and he's going to grow to be an incredible business. I'm so bullish on him and his team. So when I think about this, right, it's so easy to take money from an investor. It's so easy to take these calls from people, but you really need to just be strategic and try your best to focus and, and have these conversations, but figure out how do I get to my core business? How do I get to my KPIs? How do I get my customers paying? How do I do this right? And so I can be in a better position for the next round.
0: One thing that really stuck out to me from that was almost like optimized to actually control your own destiny as a founder rather than looking to try to fundraise a huge amount of money or what that looks like. And I think that's just incredibly important when thinking about, all right, what is actually like the best thing you can do to your business? Probably it's really just focus and really focus on your customers and really trying to make your business grow. It's not only, you know, entertaining these ideas for money. And, you know, if your business is doing well, the money will always be there. It's when your business isn't doing well that you need the money the most. So anyway, it's a great piece of advice. So when you speak with founders, since you're looking at that pre-seed, very, very early stage level, is there a particular question that you think is most important to ask?
1: Yeah, I mean, at the pre seed it's all a lot about founder market fit, right? And people throw that a lot around a lot. There's obviously the other check marks that you have to check off regardless. So is this a space you're interested in? Is it growing? Is it competitive? What's your unique value add but there's the big piece is the founder market fit and it's the early validation that people actually want this so the founder market fit is like i love just hearing their stories of their background right where did they start from where did they grow up what was their upbringing like right how did they get into the school they got into did they drop out did that like and i don't i'm not a big ivy league you know, I think two of my portfolio companies dropped out of undergrad and not because they had a cushion because they, they had a family of immigrants, but because they found this big idea and like, you know, so I, I'm not big on that, but it's more around the grit. I like the hustle. I like the, what gets them, what's this chip on their shoulder that they have that they ought to prove, right? And so that piece of it, but also looking at how they tell their story on, on their background and their successes and their failures, right? So having a confident, but obviously humble person and just, and, and then in that, how that touches on their values and how they think about the business, and then this aha moment of okay, what is this problem? And you'll find out a lot in that piece of why somebody's so obsessed with solving this problem. Now that's just the first piece of it and the most important piece of it. But then it goes into how did they find their first customer? Did they teach themselves how to code to do something? What is this this gorilla again? Gorilla marketing tactics that they did to do their first thing, right? And so in some cases it's teaching themselves how to code. Sometimes it's doing something that's non-scalable, but proving that there is a problem and in the market and people are willing to pay for it so one example of that is a company we didn't end up investing in but i thought it was brilliant and we didn't end up investing for different reasons but it was a dating app for the queer community and they basically this woman has no tech background or anything like that but basically what she did is just create a community because she realized that a lot of the traditional dating apps this they, they don't solve this problem for the queer community and so she created this online platform and she got you know a ton of followers and she's like what if I just posted an ad and just said hey if you want to post an ad on to meet somebody I'm gonna charge five dollars send me your ad and she was like sold out within a day she posted it every single day for a month and then she showed that people were willing to pay to meet somebody and there was enough people in her community where they were able to post pay for it and then she had enough data where she actually met somebody and I think somebody got married through it or something like that it was just like she showed data on that without building a code anything to, to build out the application. And so then she was able to raise, I think, a 2 to three million dollar first round to actually build out the tech. So I think what people, what, in the pre seed stage, what people want to see is that, or at least for me, what I want to see is one, the founder market fit in their story. But then two is, what is it, especially on the consumer side that they've built around community or have they had a transaction without building any tech that shows that people really want this? And so that's what I look for in the pre seed
0: no, that's really, really helpful. I think those are all excellent points in terms of how to think about, you know, not only the founders, but also validation that this really is a big problem that they're actually solving it as well. So we might've already touched on this, but what's one thing you would change in venture capital?
1: You know, there's a lot of PR, there's a lot of FOMO, there's a lot of articles being raised on people raising money and... I think what venture capital maybe used to be was not that. I mean, I wasn't around for that, but there's so much focus on these huge rounds being raised. And, and many times these these founders are in the valley, but sometimes they're not. And I understand, look, we do a lot of PR too. It, ha- it sends people to our fund to us about their investment. It sends potential LPs. I get it. But I think it's caused a lot of FOMO. I think it's caused a lot of unnecessary praise in these large rounds how much, you know, people raise, And it just leads everyone down a path in all areas of the ecosystem, from LPs to venture capitalists to founders to focus on a lot of the, maybe the wrong things. Ultimately, as a venture capitalist, what matters is my returns and that's it, right? And as a founder, it's like building a great business. And if you take a venture capital money, then it's getting an exit for your investors, which doesn't always translate into raising a ton of money. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. And so, you know, I think that's caused a lot of business to raise a ton of money and maybe shut down after a few months as we saw with Quibi and others. You know, people criticize Quibi in a bunch of different ways and, and whatever. We don't have to debate that and I don't have a perspective either way, but people criticize them like all that money that people put into that company could have gone into all these other founders or all these different businesses that had really, really good businesses that they were creating and haven't been able to close, you know, half a million or a million dollar rounds, and are really changing the world. And I don't mean by just impact or nonprofit or whatever, but like really building businesses that are going to change our planet, that are going to change the way we work that are going to change all different aspects, how we we change the world in so many ways. And so I wish that, you know, the industry kind of went back to like what we're building, the core businesses that are being built, the founders behind them, and not necessarily raising a ton of money. I wish wish there was more highlights on people that didn't raise a lot of money, but had really great businesses or big exits to highlight what you can do. And also on these founders that were just building these amazing businesses and whether or not they raise venture capital. So that's how I would want to change.
0: Those are all really good points. I think also, I think that you alluded to as well as just signaling and, you know, you raise a lot of capital. You also highlight all of the, you know, incredible investors that you have raised, just all this kind of this like feedback loop type of stuff that really happens in venture capital in order to almost like validate your company when really, I think back to your original point, it's being capital efficient. It's, you know, being actually like a real business and, you know, being able to actually be able to, to deliver returns to LPs and investors and to actually create real companies
1: and real value,
0: real value. Exactly. Real value. Absolutely. So what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally?
1: So it's funny because I don't read a lot of books and I always felt bad for that. But then I was listening to other podcasts about some other VCs and they don't read books too, or not all, some do. So I'm like, okay, great. I don't, I don't feel like dumb. I do a lot of podcasts or I do kind of other stuff. I do a lot of like potty training books because my son's two years old and uh, I'm trying to potty train him and, you know, like wheels on the bus and all that. So those are like a lot of kids books. But I will say the, what I used to read when I was younger, the book, the 12 irrefutable laws of leadership was one book that i read early in my career and it was basically the key thing from there is leading when you can't pay people they're not in it for money or promotions or anything else it's basically leading because they believe in your vision and when i think about founders that i invest in and them recruiting people on their team that many times they can't pay that are doing this for equity or you know college interns and they're there because of the founder because of the vision that's so important to me and I've had to hire interns for the last six years too, because I haven't had enough big enough fund to, to hire a full team just yet. But we you know we've had to do that thing too in and, and Stellar Vision. So that was the professional book, and then the personal book is anything by Paulo Coelho, which is a Brazilian, I believe, writer. But he wrote The Alchemist and some other books. And I don't read fiction like ever. But if I do, it's in Spanish, and I love reading Spanish love stories. Don't ask me why. It's just it's a thing, and Spanish is such a beautiful language. It's especially romantic and spanish romance language uh it's a romance language and so i love anything by him
0: that's awesome that's awesome really excited to add these to our reading list here because we haven't had anyone else to bring these up yet so
1: i wanted to give you something different (laughs) i appreciate
0: it no i love it i love it that's great so my final question for you is what's the best piece of advice that you've received
1: so it's funny because when I was in sales, when I first got into it, I came from an engineering background where I focused on the numbers so much. And I would call people or go into meetings and they would just kick me out of their office or hang up the phone on me. They're like, get out of my office. like, And I, was, I just didn't understand. I had an engineering background. I was like, I'm smart. I know my numbers, blah, blah, blah. And my boss came in there and I went to, into his office and he's like, you're in sales and you're covering Dallas. People need to hear your story. You need to ask them about their day. You need to ask them about their lives, like talk to them like they're people. And the minute I started doing that, we eventually got into business. We got into performance. We got into all that. And for me, it completely changed the way I think about things. It doesn't, especially in BC and with founders, like everyone's really smart. You build a cool tech, you're all engineers from Google, whatever, you know, like you're all super, super smart. And some people can get away with being assholes. Like I'm just not one of those people. I've never been able to. And I don't think many people are 99% of the population. But when I pitch or when you know, LP is when founders pitch when you speak. Like many times, especially as a type A smart person, you want to get the numbers right, you want to get the information right, especially women, many times, right? And it's just like people are people and they're, we're all human and we all have a story and we all want to connect with somebody regardless of whatever you're selling. So, focus on that and the numbers will come and the business case will come. And so, that was one of the best pieces of advice I've received.
0: Yeah. I mean, first of all, I loved how a piece of advice came up to you through When You're a Goldman. That was really interesting to hear. And yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. Samara, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: And there you have it. I really enjoyed having Samara on the show. I highly recommend following her on Twitter at Samara M. Hernandez. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.